is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello, everybody, again, and welcome to episode, can you believe it, number 41 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. As you know, we are the only show that reviews and rates and ranks hard rocks and heavy metals, brilliant and maybe not so brilliant albums, and uh, with myself, Richard, and my two friends, Steve and Mark, we are defining, creating the absolutely definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. And my goodness, it's growing by the week. Uh, we are everywhere in terms of this podcast. Hopefully, yes, you found us already, but we're on Spotify, Apple, Google, etc., etc., etc. And please look for us on Twitter at, at EnterSadMen. And most importantly, uh, visit us at www.entersadmen.co.uk where you can find all of our reviews, the Hall of Fame itself, and um, all of the episodes that we have done in the past, all 40 of them. But right now, we're on to 41. And uh, our Tico Torres Tombola that spits out the themes that we base each episode on, last time spat out. A year, and that year was 1986. And um, we picked three very interesting and not your necessarily usual albums from 1986. So um, let's hear about them. Mark, what was your choice? Well, I, I looked through, obviously, did a load of research, and there, there are some big, obvious ones, aren't there? You know, Master of Puppets, The Ultimate Sin. Um, there are all sorts of big, big albums from 86 that we could all have gone for. Um, but in the end, uh, I went for a band who, well, I mean, they, they were seen as kind of part of the second wave of the new new wave of British heavy metal. Um, I'm not going to over-egg the pudding and say that they were deemed to be important, but I think they were relatively significant. So I thought it might be interesting to listen to Baby Taku, and the album was Force Majeure. Steve? Well, you chumps thought that I would go for Eat em and Smile by the by the great David Lee Roth. And if, if I'm honest, that's probably what I would have done <laughs> until, until you smugly suggested I would. So I thought, no. And as you said, Mark, there's so many. And I did look at... Um, uh, Rain in Blood by Slayer, and I did look obviously at the puppets, but you said don't do it. Night Songs by Cinderella, just genius. And I was going to do Stay Ugly by Pile Driver for just to just to get the executioner, if if for no other reason. But I didn't. I went for um, I went for a band who again just resonate, just ooze. Nineteen eighty six, mid eighties, which is after they've been around for forty years, but that's their period, that's their golden age. And it's Loudness and their second album with Max Norman, um, which was Lightning Strikes. And I've had a blast going back to it. It's been good fun. Rich, where did you go? Yeah, um, that was a great choice, both of those. Uh, well, I, I think I was possibly a little the most predictable out of the three of us. But I, I, I thought, yeah, this is, it, it's time to introduce this band because we haven't heard from them yet on the podcast. Um, as you two know, one of my absolute favourites, um, and that is Queensryche. And uh, their second album uh, in uh, 1986 was Rage for Order, uh, and I've picked that one. 
So we should listen to a little bit, a few clips, just to let everybody know, uh, remind everybody of the marvellous stuff that we've been listening to this last week. that's whetted the whistle just listening to those again just reminds us all what a fantastic year 86 was and um and we're about to prove it for the next hour uh wandering through these three brilliant albums and where better to start our journey through 1986 than bradford the epicenter of hard rock and heavy metal and mark baby tucker <laughs> opening album sleeve notes yes my god my God, Bradford in West Yorkshire. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's not the most assuming place, is it, um, that, uh, that you would expect to find a, well, not just a rock band, but, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, during the conversation that's about to follow. But were they a rock band by this stage, or were they actually, or was it a rock band with an AOR band trying to get out? And I'm not entirely sure the jury has returned a unanimous verdict on that. But um, the one thing that is for sure is that this is a much less heavy album than their debut album, uh, which is titled Firstborn, um, which had been released in uh, 1984, if memory serves. Anyway, um, the, the fact is, Baby Taku only did two albums. I think there are some obvious reasons why they only did two albums. Um, not least comes down to probably the choice of name, um, some of the artwork. Um, but and I, as yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm not going to overrate the pudding and say they were important. I don't think they were in the grand scheme of things beyond providing, except with a vocalist who never recorded anything with them. I think that's probably the biggest claim to fame. Baby Taku. Got, but um, yeah, Baby Tucker, just an oddity, really. But Firstborn was a really good album. So when this came out, I went straight out and I bought it. 
So let's get some of the detail out of the way. Um, the album, as we said, was Force Majeure. It was released, well, <laughs> talk about a band that there isn't really very much um, information about. I have absolutely no idea what date it was released. What we do know is it was probably recorded in early 1986 because they were shelling out albums like Peas bands at this time, you know, in the studio on a Monday and out by Friday, and that was that done. Um, it runs 42 and a half minutes-ish. Uh, producer's a guy called Liam Sternberg, never heard of him before, never heard of him since. It was recorded at Rockfield Studios at Monmouth, um, and it had the following lineup: Rob Armitage on vocals, who would later join Accept, Neil Saxton on guitars and backing vocals, Andy Barrett on uh, guitars, keyboards and backing vocals, Paul Smith on bass, and Tony Sugden. Never was there a more English name on drums. It won't surprise anybody to learn that it didn't chart in the United Kingdom, which means it certainly didn't chart in the United States of America. And we don't know how many albums it sold. I think probably one, and I own it. Um, Ten songs uh, on the album, uh, five on each side. Rock, brackets, rock, close brackets, shoes on sight, over you, falling star, and the lights go down, make up side one, side two, keep it together, maybe. I'm your man, and long way down, and the end of the album is Promises. Um, So there we go. How did you two find it? I tell you what, I tell you what, Mark. I did um, when you put this up. I, I remember I loved First Fall. I do remember liking First Fall. I can't remember for the life of me why I wouldn't therefore have got Force Majeure because I haven't got it. And so I revisited before before I played this last week. I revisited First Fall to remind myself. Well, did I like it? And I did. I loved it. It's a massive, massive album. And I do remember mm. when you come back to tracks like Holding On, particularly was a favourite, and AWOL. I just remember wearing the groove out on those. But I remember the, the album being massive. And then so I'm asking myself, why on earth didn't I buy Force Majeure? I've no idea. I've absolutely no idea. It's the first time I've listened to it, if I'm honest. And it's 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 what I thought. It is pretty much an extension of, of where Firstborn started, I think. Um, it's kind of going on from there, as in as much as it kind of feels the same, I think. Um, I'm immediately thinking those mid-80s bands, British bands who didn't make it, and we've introduced our listening public to a few, like Marseille and Grand Prix and Fastway, throwing Little Angels, all these kind of mid-80s, second-wave northern bands, if you like, kind of cheap and lazy analysis, I know, but um, they all offered something really interesting, but they all kind of fell short for whatever reason. Um, But there's so much to like about this album, so much to like about their stuff. No bum notes on here at all, really. Most interesting is that having delivered Firstborn on Ultra Noise, I think, you know, they've kicked on, and they're now on yeah. a decent label, MFN. So you're thinking, well, why on earth did this yield nothing, you know? And you alluded to the earlier points about, you know, Armitage. I presume he must have got his audition for Accept fairly shortly after this. So if he was the glue that was holding it all together, whatever other reasons, um, it didn't happen. But I think it's great. I think it's great. Really enjoyed it. Richard? I don't know what to say after that. I didn't know Baby Taku. Um, you've both mentioned them before. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember you playing me any before. So this was, yeah, this is my first uh, intro into them. Uh, yeah, we'll come into where do they sit in the spectrum. But there's yeah, there are echoes of a few bands in here. But yeah, this, this is this is you know this is good proper typical mid eighties. Hard rock, 
and it's been a thoroughly enjoyable listen. Okay, so Force Majeure kicks off with a song called Rock, open parenthesis, rock, close parenthesis. This is a Boston moment for me because they kind of start with a track that they simply can't surpass in the rest of the album. Is anybody else getting quite a lot of Phil Mogg and UFO in this? Because Rob Armitage's vocal on this is so, so Phil Mogg. But and, and it, there, there are shadows of UFO as, as well, um, which is probably why I like it so much. And it's just got the most gorgeous vocal hook line on it. Um, you can't help but sing to this. I wonder, it's got a reference to Black Sabbath in it, so it's meant it references Neon Knights. There are other kind of references hidden within it as well um, that kind of hint at lyrics from other very well-known tracks. I would love to know when the band wrote this because it, it includes lyrics like, did we ever really make it anyway? And... This feels to me like a love letter to a career that the band should have had but didn't. And I wonder whether Armitage was already leaving at the point they wrote this, that he was on his way out of the band and that was that. Because we didn't hear from any of them other than Armitage ever again. I love this song. I think it's it's just been an absolutely gorgeous kind of reconnection with the album. It's a great way to connect with the album. Top, best song of the album for me, but... Um, what about you two? I've had a couple more vocalists, and I've got a list of about a dozen <laughs> throughout this album. One of one of whom is, of course, Dave Menachetti. I'll turn up later. Ron Keel and Paul Shortino are the two I had straight away. Although he's clearly not as good as Shortino, um, but I'm getting that kind of sound to it, that kind of feel. Um, and let's face it, what a feel! I mean, that, that's that's a rock vocal, isn't it? And um, yeah. Yeah, I think, and you can see why, except would fancy him. I mean, he's the he's the polar opposite of where Rudo goes. But great singer, great singer, and a, and you are right. This is, I've got a couple more that are up there with this, but yeah, this is a real high point on the album. So the first vocalist that came to mind when he started singing this was actually Paul Rogers, and a very heavy, heavy Paul Rogers. Um, I thought. To start with, with the acoustic guitar and the way that it starts, I thought it was quite a brave first track. But once it kicks in, it's a really, really good start. And after I finished listening to this, I thought, oh, well, I'm, I think I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> well, then then you see what happens after rock. Rock yeah, is oh, you God. end up with the most ridiculous sub-Beach Boys harmony you'll ever hear in your life. <laughs> And you kind of expect him to go into a good vibrations cover or something. And to be fair, it, it takes them a minute and a quarter to sort out this fucking song and decide where it's going to go. And then it settles into a groove and it's great. It's called Shoot on Sight. There's a whole load of unnecessary shit going on at the, at the front of this track um, that does adds nothing to it. In fact, detracts because you're kind of hovering over the needle at this point. Um, but then it kicks in about, as I say, a minute, a quarter and takes off. And when it does, it is a cracking little tune. But I'm afraid that vocal opening cannot go unpunished when it comes to the scores. <laughs> it's horrible. Horrible. Four men from Bradford shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that. 
<laughs> no, I, I didn't mind it. I, so I think this is Def Leppard, and even including that star. If Def, Def Leppard had done that shoot on site, you'd have both been going, yeah, yeah, oh, that's great, yeah, that's great. So um, I think you're talking bollocks. Hold on. If Mutt Lang had been producing this, I might say the same thing. <laughs> anyway, carry on. I like it. It's one of those songs that really sweeps you along. I, I didn't get that with the harmonies at all. I love to driving double bass through it all. The thing about these three albums tonight, which I've enjoyed, have been the arrangements on them. Uh, you know, sometimes unexpected, sometimes genius. Um, but the way the songs, all the songs have been put together, and I think the way they put this song together, uh, I've really enjoyed. So, yeah, it's one of my higher scores. Well, we go from frenetic and frantic uh, track two to a uh, gloomy and portentous track three, which suddenly goes all Q5, doesn't it? Um, it we get this kind of gloomy organ. Um, and then lots of very light keyboards. And one thing that I would say about this album is that Andy Barrett's keyboards do not enhance a lot of the tracks on this album. In fact, the tracks would be better off without the keyboard in it. Um, and this is where I was saying, do, is this a hard rock band that's trying to be a bit keyboardy and keep up with the times? You know, this is the this is the year that Slippery and Wet was you know, released after all? Or is this actually an AOR band that is trying to keep its creds as a hard rock band? And I don't know, because if they had settled on just one or the other, I think they could have been huge. But they don't. I, I feel like they've got trying to keep a foot in both camps and just it doesn't quite work as a whole. To my mind, they're the hard rock band who are throwing keyboards in and are shooting for an MTV audience you know, they don't want to get on MTV. They don't want to get on YTV. But I still think, I still think they are a hard rock band with keyboards in, and I, I, I like the keyboards. I really do. This, I mean, and I think this track, it's funny. I've listened to this track over and over again more than any others. Beyond the fact that it starts like together in Electric Dreams by the Human League, which therefore makes it brilliant anyway. I just think it's it's almost the best song ever written, but it just doesn't quite get there, and it's just. There's just something missing. I don't know what it is. I love it. Um, can we add to the list of vocalists? Can we also add John Cougar Mellencamp now? Because <laughs> uh, there's a, a, a mix of Phil Mogg and Mellencamp in that as well. Richard? Yeah, it's nice. I've, I've got yeah, bits of Survivor in here as well. And, uh, what's interesting, when I first heard the opening bars, I didn't get any other particular band. I got, hang on a minute, this is the theme tune to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> I mean, you might not know, you play it again, but uh, yeah. It's, but I like, I like how it settles down. I mean, I mean it's, it's so 80s, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. For a, an instrument that was thought to be the future at the time, it's these keyboards that absolutely nail the date on when this song was recorded. Yes. Yes, they do. Okay, well, that's good. Um, track four comes out of the gate like a branded steer. Um, you know, this riff, very heavy riff going on. Unlike the last track, I mean, you've already said how much you like it. For me, the 
keyboards complement this track in, in a way that I felt there was, the keyboards got in the way of the last one a bit. This is a proper rock song, isn't it? It is, yeah. And Armitage is kind of straining a little bit more here as well, but it's a great song. Suddenly in the chorus of this, it's they sound like Kiss. Yeah, it's just it's suddenly turned into that kind of Kiss choral combo. Stanley Simmons and Chris. It's um good rock number. That's what I like about this album as well. Another thing I like about this album, and Richard alluded to it earlier, I think less so with loudness, but the arrangement of the song was certainly Queen's right. I mean, where do you go with them? You've no idea. Um, and this is similar in as much as it's there's a lot of you know imagination and ingenuity in this. And this is about as straight ahead as they get. I really like this. So um, side one closes with a track called The Lights Go Down. Um, the last one's called Falling Star. Don't know if we mentioned it. I can't remember if we did. Anyway, you know now. This is this is Baby Tucku's jump moment, isn't it? This is this is absolutely the start of 1984. Uh, it's, it's, amazing, it's so close. You know, you kind of you, you kind of wince. It's so close. Um, it's got a bit of an overworked intro for my liking because it's not as clever as Van Halen, and it, you know we we get into the jump esque keys. Um, but it's a decent side ender. I think Armitage is a bit is straining a bit here though. I think his vocals a bit tight. But I think basically what what this does is it rounds off a very very strong side one. I can't believe you're wincing. I, th- I thought you'd be purring. It's um, I love this. I think th- th- even the start of it. I know that was the bit you had the issue with, but um... no, I'm wincing only at how close it is. Not that it's bad, but it's so close to Van Halen. Yeah, but it's, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna plagiarise anyone, why not start with the governors? There are these two elements to Baby Tokyo, aren't there? There are these. They will rock and they will bring it back, and and the keyboard will take over. And you, you, if if you know that and accept that, then you're fine. And the keyboard is back here. This is this is just mid eighties bling in it on a on a spectacular scale. This is just so big and brash and yeah, cracker. Mm. It's absolute classic eighties pop rock, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a good fun ending to side one, isn't it? Turn the record over, thinking, great, that was a strong five songs. Um, and to be honest, they don't really let up too much with the opening track on side two, which is Keep It Together. Again, for me, the, the keyboards are too big uh, and the harmonies are a bit overdriven as well. But um, it's good. It's good. But... Every time I've listened to it this week, I've kind of mourned the end of side one. Kind of, this has sustained me through, but then the rest of side two, I'm kind of a bit ambivalent about, to be honest. It's all right. This track, Keep It Together, just smacks to me of Journey. Imagine Journey singing and playing this. And this, 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 you know, this could have been on Race on Radio. This could have been on Frontiers. And I wonder if, did, did the band have a bit of a crisis of uh, in terms of who they actually were, of, of, a crisis of identity? Uh, they trying a number of different things. But that said, as a song, I, I like this. But I think that isn't isn't that the same question that I posed that Steve answered, which is, are they an are they an AOR? What what we would define, I suppose, lazily as an AOR band because generally a rock band, but. You know, 
are they an AOR band or are they a rock band? Steve thinks they're a rock band that have put a bit of keys into their into their stuff, and, and I think that's probably about right, actually. But, yeah, I listen to this, and I think if you'd just gone journey, if you'd just gone complete journey, I think they would have been massive. Mm. They definitely weren't this, were they, on First Born? It, it was definitely yeah. an edgier album, a rockier album. I wonder how much, cause I can't, I can't for the life of me remember who produced firstborn i doubt it was liam sternberg was it uh, i don't know but we can find out you talk i'll look it's just that you know the bloke who wrote the bangles hit walk like an egyptian i mean he he knows a commercial song doesn't he and and there's definitely far more of a commercial feel to this um although sternberg also did the um he produced the rat ep didn't he which is his as far as i'm concerned that's his claim to fame far more so than walk like an egyptian so it's produced <laughs> <laughs> Firstborn was produced by John Verity. So anyway, we've um, we're now into um, track two, side two, which is called Maybe. And and my first note was maybe not. Um, I, I'm really struggling with ballads in this podcast, aren't yeah. I? Um, it, there's far too much Christopher Cross in this for my liking, I have to say. Um, it's I mean, it's not a total disaster, but it's not pretty, I don't think. Um, and, you know, frankly, Sugden's Stop the Cavalry drumming gets right on my tits by the end of this. Yeah, I get that. The first note, the first thing I wrote down was Only Time Will Tell by Asia. I don't mind this. I think it's quite catchy, but it's... Um... Pigeonhole under O for OK. That's all it is. Yeah, I got that. As soon as it came on, time will tell. So um, as sort of the, the we get over the hump of uh, side two with uh, a song called I'm Your Man. And I'm conscious that we've done a lot of referencing of other bands and other singers and other musicians in this conversation. And I think it's, from my point of view, and I'm sure from yours, that is not meant to be in any way derogatory. I think it's about trying to place them for people who are listening to this, who in all likelihood have not heard Baby Tucky before, let's be honest, the vast majority of people. Um, So there is another one, another reference coming, um, because we're now back into an up-tempo song, and I'm getting quite a lot of Backstreet Symphony era thunder now, I'm getting Danny Bowes in my ears, and yeah, this is something that I, I, I can hear Luke Morley having written. It's um, perfectly decent, perfectly decent song. But again, I just think it it, it just highlights the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the band. They're, they're, do they want to rock? Do they want to just you know go mellowy kind of middle of the road cruising down Ventura Highway kind of? I don't know. I don't know. You can do both. Mark, you can rock and you can cruise, I think. And I think, I I don't want to over-egg this or overstate it, but they've done it well. I, th- I think they found a balance that's really, really interesting, and I think they do it really well. And I love I'm Your Man. When I was listening to I'm Your Man for the first time, I was just thinking, I now want to go out and tell people to start listening to Baby Taku. That's how much it kind of excited me. I was at the point, especially after Maybe, which is a bit of a letdown, and you've forgotten how good Side One was. And I was thinking, no, 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 we're back. You know, we're absolutely back on the bike. And I need to get out there and tell people that this band is a really good listen. 
You know, this I like yeah. Onion Man. I think it's it's groovy. It's a groovy rock song. I think it's great. Really do. Yeah, I, I thought it had a bit of a Thin Lizzy gallop to it. There's a, there's a there's a big Kiss drum fill right in the middle of it that uh, brought a smile to my face when I heard it. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, it gallops along this, and it's pretty good. So penultimate track then um, is called Long Way Down, and hey. Listen, everybody, Kevin Dubrow is in the house. <laughs> the opening vocal, I had to go back and play it three times, and then suddenly it clicked. When you listen to a track like this on an album like this, you think if someone takes a punt on this in America, yeah, they could have done really well, pretty well. I don't know. You know, with good, you know, on an American label with good marketing, I don't know. Mm. I just think it's that kind of feel at that time. It's really, really good stuff. Well, we talked about those, we talked before in previous episodes about those mid-80s, high on love, scary, high way up, you know, a long way up, sort of your journey survivor, feel good, all my goodness kind of tracks. And and this falls into that category, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Good fun. Okay. And uh, so we we get to the back end of the album and uh, the sign-off track, which is called... Promises. This is this is all right, but I can't be doing with the wordless lyrics from the band and Armitage in particular. The la la lying through it, and it's just no. Okay, I think it's a, I think it's a really good finish. I think he goes a bit Coverdale. I think it, I think it's a really it kind of almost dreamy floater of a number, and that kind of massive. We've not really talked about the backbeat, you know. The, the, this is you hear it in this. It just thunders along. Probably could have been a bit further up, but um, you know, loads of sort of flash mobs singing and keyboard and big drums. There's a lovely tease into the finish, which finishes strong. I think it's a. I think it's a really, really good, good ender. Mm, I agree. Again, I'm back to Paul Rogers. This is heavy, bad company. That's what this is. Yeah, I get that. Um, yeah, left me with a smile. Yeah. So if you're listening to this on um, Spotify, um, after this you would get Rock and Roll Hero. Um, but we are listening to the original vinyl release. So this is where the album ends, and it's time, boys, um, to give us your highs and your lows. So for me, my low is maybe and... At the top end, starter track, end track, promises and um, and uh, rock, rock. Um, and it depends on mood I'm in, really. I might give it to promises. <laughs> Steve? I'm kind of maybe or keep it together for the low point. Probably just maybe, giving them the same score. I've given three tracks the same score, but I just, it's just that little part. I mean, rock, rock is fantastic opener, but just edged by the song that could have been brilliant, which is Over You, which I just think is fantastic. Okay, so Rock Rock, uh, no surprises there. Um, and Promises would be my my low. But um, there you go. I think what that says, more than anything else, is that then there's something in this for everybody. Um, but that is Baby Tucker. It's the last of Baby Tucker. It may not be the last we hear. Baby Taku, given that uh, they had an album before this one, but this was the last one they did. And um, later on in the programme, we will uh, 
decide where that sits in our fabled Hall of Fame. But it is time to move on. And we move on to a band that I suppose built um, a pretty impressive reputation for arrangements and um, things that Richard really enjoys, which are layers. Uh, so, uh, Richard, why don't you talk us through Queen's Rice Rage for Order? Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, so we're talking Rage for Order here, which is uh, Queen's Rice's second uh, studio album. A few facts I mean, they were formed in 1980 in, in Washington uh, by Michael Wilson and Chris DeGarmo, the guitarists. They were really the nucleus. And then the three other members, Scott Rockefeller, Eddie Jackson, Jeff Tate, joined. I mean, this, this was the classic lineup that brought us Mind Crime and Empire. And, but they released their first album, The Warning, in 1984, where you know, there were some glimpses of what they would become. Uh, but it's nice to review this, their second album, Rage for Order, because for me, this is where they really started to nail that multi-layered, typical classic uh, Queensryche sound. Uh, in terms of the background, I mean, they, they wrote, I think, a lot of the songs whilst they were out touring uh, The Warning. So um, they had them pretty well written, pretty well arranged by the time it came to record this album. And uh, Neil Kernan, uh, the producer, had produced a number of live albums uh, for the likes of Dokken and Kansas and, and Peter Gabriel. And uh, he'd used uh, this um, a very well-known, a, a big mobile studio called Le Mobile to, to produce these, these live albums. Uh, but Neil actually wheeled this unit into um, uh, some big warehouse or house or wherever back in, in, in Bellevue where the band were from. And they actually used that as, as to practice and arrange their songs and really get everything polished before they, they went into the studios. So, yeah, so Rose Ford was recorded uh, in, from 1985 into... 1986 and eventually released in June, on June the 27th in 1986, released on EMI. Um, and as I said, so Neil Kernan produced it. And as I've mentioned, I mean, this is the classic lineup of Queen's Rock with Jeff Tate on vocals, Chris DeGarmo, Michael Wilton on guitars, Eddie Jackson on bass and Scott on drums. It did pretty well. It did pretty well on the charts. It reached uh, 47 in the U.S., and 66 in the UK. It did reach gold status, um, but it's considered by quite a lot of people to be that undiscovered gem. I really like it, and uh, I've really enjoyed listening to it again. Gents, I don't know whether you knew much about this album before this week, so how did you get on with it? I really like it. The first thing I wrote down was Art House Metal. First time I played this, interestingly enough, I was just I was just sifting through Wikipedia and moving around page to page, and I started reading about the breakup of the band, which has got nothing to do with this. But I didn't listen to a single bloody thing for an hour. I just it just completely washed over because it's such an extraordinary story. I mean, we'll come to that, you know, further down the line when we do later albums of theirs. But Christ, that was a bitter old breakup, wasn't it? Bloody hell! As for this, this is um, I know this isn't a concept album as such. But as I say, those levels of ingenuity and, and yeah, sophistication make it feel like one. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't suppose I'm the first person to suggest, I don't know, um, that, it, that it kind of looks like a dry run for mind crime. 
you know, mind crime would have happened anyway because that's where they were going. They were evolving that way, I'm sure. But stuff on here definitely shows what's possible. I know from from reading, um, there are clearly fans who were slightly disappointed with the kind of keyboard onslaught that, that this album had. And I've seen, you know, some fans call it underwhelming from that respect. But to me, I say bring it on. It's 1986 and I love a keyboard. I mean, to me, it's just it's just absolutely off the time. Rock's gone commercial and, you know, why shouldn't Queensryche want to tap into that kind of scene? Pretty much everyone else was mining it. So I think there's an awful lot of really very likeable stuff on it. I really There's a couple of tracks which bring the overall score down. And it, there's the usual vocal gymnastics from Tate, which... But there's much to like, a hell of a lot to like, a, a cover to die for. Um, and But it does tail off. I find the whole thing tails off, definitely. But overall, I think it's brilliant. I didn't know the album before, and I'm glad I've listened to it. I think there's some absolute corks on it, especially when I hear that first track. When I hear Walk in the Shadows, that first track, I'm just so taken back to 86. I just think it's just of an era. And as soon as you hear something like that, you you know you're in for the ride. And it's been a good ride. Well, I think we should get to Jeff Tate and his vocal gymnastics sooner rather than later because the answer to your question, Richard, was I think I, I kind of got Queensryche when you played me Empire. That was when it kind of all clicked for me because I remember listening to The Warning and I think I listened to it once and I kind of put it to one side because I couldn't get on with Jeff Tate. And then I think I heard this album or bits of this album and again, it's that voice. And it does, it's like so many vocals that we have talked about over the last 11 months, and it takes a bit getting used to, and you've got to persevere with it. And if you don't, pers- if you just judge it, then frankly, Jeff Tate is Marmite, and back in the day, uh, it was a taste I didn't like. Um, I, I sent you, what, you guys a WhatsApp going, why didn't I? Why wasn't I more open-minded about it? Well, this wasn't what I was into, is the short answer. Yeah, in 1986, I was into Bon Jovi and The Ultimate Sin and, you know, all of that stuff. I wasn't into this. But with the benefit of hindsight, now I see the sophistication. I get the kind of the layering and the complexity of it. Like you, Steve, I think it tails off at the end. You know, I think the first half of the album is really good, really strong. Really strong. But, yeah, like you, Steve, really enjoyed listening to it. I, I always enjoy listening to Queens right now because you know you're going to get something that's a bit more grown up and a bit more thoughtful and a bit more uh, – is going to test you a bit more and challenge the way you think about music. And there is a there's a time and a place for Slayer and there is a time and a place for Queens right. Yeah. <laughs> is there a time and a place for Earth Crisis or have you not found that time or- I haven't found that time yet, but it may come. You never know. I may look back at Earth Crisis when I'm 92, God willing, and go, <laughs> I mean, why was I so narrow-minded? Exactly. I don't think so. <laughs> so 11 tracks on Race for Order, six on side one, five on side two. And side one, Walk in the Shadows is track one. For me, this is a this is a, this is the calling card of what – Queensryche will become the the big back line, the twin guitars, the vocal harmonies, uh, love him or hate him, takes range. He throws his whole lot at this. It's just that classic Queensryche sound. Uh, what's not to like? 
<laughs> What's not to like is that classic Queen's right the way Tate's voice comes in that 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 sort of drop in that it, it happens so often and I don't like it at all. <laughs> but that's just nitpicking because I think it's a fantastic track. It's got chart hit written all over it. I don't know whether it was a chart hit or not, but it just feels like it should have been. It should have been all over MTV. I mean, it was a single, I'm sure, wasn't it? Second or third off the album, but um, yeah, third single, yeah. It's a really confident start, isn't it, for a, a band just doing their second album? You know, they sound like a band that have been around for a long time, and I think you know that confidence comes from partly from having Chris DeGarmo in the band because clearly the man's an absolute bloody genius, um, but so is Wilton, and and then you talked about concept album. I don't think Queensryche know how to make an album that isn't a, a concept album. This is a concept album. It's about the power of technology over people, isn't it? I'm broadly speaking, that's a bit that's a bit kind of rudimentary and crass, but that's basically what the album's all about. It's about finding order in chaos. Um I think it's I think it's a great opening track and I just wish the whole album was like this. <laughs> I mean to to illustrate that, you just need to look at, at track two. My God, are they doing a ballad already? The track two is um, I, I Dream in Infrared. Um, yeah, uh, well, after that explosive start, we then go moody. you got Eddie Jackson's bass, sort of really melodic, and opens this whole, I don't know, well, ballad or just slower track discuss. I'd say it's more a slow song uh, than a ballad. I... I really like this. It's again, well, you talk layers, Mark. The, the layers in this, the, the just the little guitar accents and everything sort of just coming in uh, yeah, from, from all directions. And then, yeah, then it builds up into that real sort of signature Queen's Reich chorus. Rockerfield drums are massive and big throughout it. I talked about Calling Card on the last track. You know, there you can you can hear bits of this song in the in slower songs on Mind Crime and the slower songs on on Empire. You just need to sit there, sit still, and let songs like this wash over you. It's a it's a great it's an odd choice for for Tractor, if I'm honest, but because nothing about Queen's right really conforms anyway. It doesn't seem so ludicrous or out of or out of kilter with everything that's going on. And also the other thing about it, of course, is that. If there was any sense that you didn't appreciate Tate as a vocalist, that he is all, you know, screaming falsetto. And he, and he, he got an award, didn't he? One of those tongue-in-cheek awards for highest um, sort of falsetto singers or something. I, I saw it on Wikipedia. I don't know what it was. But this is a this is a great illustration of what a fine singer he, he could be. He, well, he is. And it's not, you know, beat about the bush. He is. Um, and when he does this sort of number, it's fantastic. He has so much range in his voice and therefore... I'm going to name check two of your favourite other bands, Rich, and I'm not picking on you. But whereas with someone like Mustaine and Geddy Lee, they're they're of a kind of level, but Tate isn't. Tate's an enormously talented singer. It just there are parts of his voice that annoy him more than others. But it's maybe that's just me. He is. He's also had a. He's got a fantastic range. Yeah. And it was. I think it was only on M. Really, when they got to Empire, that that range was tamed. Well, let's move on to to track three. Track three is called The Whisper, and uh, they step it up again. Basically, well, I mean, this is Iron Maiden meets Prog, isn't it? It, (laughs) 
fantastic, classic sort of twin Iron Maiden type guitars opening this and throughout. And I mean, then it gets into a real shuffle and a gallop. Uh, Jeff Tate does his best impression of Bruce Dickinson. Um, uh, but yeah, it, this is one of those songs where I I wish he brought at some points he brought it down an octave or ten. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Iron Maiden reference because that's where I went immediately. Um, and yes, he does. There, there was a point where I, I actually lost track of who I was listening to and thought I was actually listening to Iron Maiden. It's that close. But um, the whispered lyrics, I think, add a really kind of nice, menacing tone to the whole thing as well. A really good song. Really, really good. So let's move on to track four of Side One. This is the cover. It's a cover by a lady called Lisa Dal Bello and a song called Gonna Get Close to You. I've always found it a bit of a strange inclusion. I mean, it's, whilst it's recorded all those years ago, it, 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 it now reminds me of modern Gary Newman. <laughs> it's, it's almost an electronica kind of, heavy electronica style. Uh, I mean, this was the lead single from the album. Typical Queensryche, sort of echoey, moody, atmospheric, almost sort of processed sounds. Tate singing a bit lower and I mean, it's sort of quite a sinister, almost creepy stalker kind of way. Well, what I found, I find strange about it, I, I still struggle with this song, if I'm honest. Um, not so much necessarily the moody bits, but when it picks up, it almost goes sort of happy and standard rock, and it, and it doesn't quite fit for me. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think of this one? I love it. I I, I absolutely love it. And you you say it's strange. I think strange would have been them covering "She Loves You" or "My Generation." That would have been strange. They've they've chosen someone I've never heard of. It's, this is apparently this woman's you know alt rock indie vocalist whatever. It's classic. It's exactly the sort of thing they'd do. It's so off the scale, unlikely, um, and they've done something unbelievable with it. I think even the bit where it turns a bit Mika or Prince at the end, which is um you know which is fascinating. It really is fascinating. Again, just showing the breadth to what they can do. Um, I love the atmosphere of this song. Absolutely adore it. Um. I think this is fucking brilliant. I think they've done a brilliant job of this. This is absolutely top draw. Really, 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 really outstanding track. <laughs> yeah, Rich. <laughs> yeah. <So there. laughs> okay, well, well, that's a surprise. All right, let's move on then to, uh, to track five on side one, and track five is called The Killing Words. Well, this kind of starts with almost X-Files kind of keyboards. It's another slower song. Um, I mean, this has got a big emotional vocal performance from Tate on this one. Uh, it's got their sort of the classic sort of choppy guitar chords from Wilson and DeGamo on it that we'll hear in so many other Queen's Rife songs. And I think from DeGamo, really haunting guitar solo. I, I really like this track. Yeah, I'm not quite so fond. Yeah, I, I, I get I get the solo, and I think I think this is quite an average track that's been elevated by a the solo and b Tate's performance on this is awesome. Yeah, if it wasn't for Tate, I'd be marking it quite low. If I'm honest. 
Okay, so let's move on to the last track of side one, uh, which is called Surgical Strike. So they pick the tempo up again on this one. Again, they're almost getting a bit maiden-y. This is good, solid stuff uh, for me. Um, I might like some of the breaks. Uh, uh, again, a good guitar solo. I've not that got that much to say about it. I think it's one of those songs in some of the rest of the company on this album that's fairly straightforward. I mean, you might disagree. Uh, I think my issue with this is that Jeff Tate straining away like a constipated dog is starting to grate on me a bit. It's all up here now. The whole song is up here and it's it's driving me nuts. And uh, side two starts with track seven, which is, if I'm pronouncing this right, Neue Regel. Well, for me, this is where it happens. Uh, I, I love this track. There's there's just so much going on. There's there's an atmospheric fade in. There's almost a welcome to the machine kind of start. Then guitars, these really sort of haunting notes. The the main riff, and then it starts to build. And you've got the overdubs and the wails and the layers, the suppressed vocals, um, and then it just goes. I mean, for me, this really is the blueprint for the for Queensryche, and this is where they really lay the marker for what they did in in Mind Crime and uh, End Empire. And I've, I've summed everything that Richard said up in one word, which is grandiose. And I think that's exactly what um, this track is. It's just it's just they've thrown everything at this. Strong start to, to side two. We are talking about Neue Regal. <laughs> because I'm a bit lost now, okay? I, I, get, I get it conceptually. I do get it conceptually. But it's, it's like they're trying to represent the chaos of this concept you know in in the music and it's just it is exactly that it's chaotic and i'm sure it's got loads of layers i'm sure it's lovely and it's really complex and you know ambitious but fuck that can i just have walk in the shadows again please (laughs) mark that's fine honestly you don't have to worry (laughs) if you just you just just go to bed and it'll be fine. Let the grown-ups stay up and listen to a majestic track. Good. I didn't realise we'd moved on to loudness, but okay. (laughs) Well, let's move on to uh, the next track, which is Chemical Youth, Rackets, We Are Rebellion. For me, back to a more straight-ahead track, obviously particularly after the last one, uh, nice riffs and nice touches. I love Noya Regal so much. I, I've, I've always found uh, We Are Rebellion a bit traditional. <laughs> I love the start to that song, Chemical Youth. And you think within the first sort of 30 seconds, you think this is going to erupt. You know, that opening is, is just building up to something massive and it doesn't go anywhere massive at all. Um, it is pretty straightforward stuff. I'm mourning the loss of the singability that there was on side one. Yeah. I know that's a really simplistic thing to say, but if, if I think about all of the Queensryche tracks that I really, really, really love, you know, Breaking the Silence, I Don't Believe in Love, Empire, um, Silent Lucidity, um, uh, Della Brown, all of those stuff, that 
they you can sing along to them. They're, they're huge melodies in them, and they kind of sweep and they soar. And this is all just and it's deliberate. I think it was a deliberate production technique that it was all very staccato. Um, I think I remember reading somewhere that they actually deliberately went for that to kind of represent the robotics and mm. technology and, and stuff. So it's a concept album which I get. I just just feel this is just a bit relentless. It's not about I don't dislike it, but I'm starting to think I could do something a bit more melodic now. Well, should we try the next track then? Um, well, we can, but it's not going to solve my problem. <laughs> <laughs> The Trow Nine is a track called London. Again, a slower track, slow tempo piece. Yeah, fairly classic Queensryche ingredients in terms of the, uh, the, the, the drums, little accents of guitars, some bits of, you know, sort of heartbeat kind of keyboards. Um, really another brilliant dual guitar solo in this. Um, it's got that sort of classic rock and feel Jackson back line to it. Uh, then with with Jeff Tate's vocals sweeping over the top, Th- this is a song to just listen to in the dark, lights turned off, eyes closed, and and let it wash over you. I, I like it. Yeah, if you're asleep as well, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, they've done it again. It's like Chemical Youth. It starts, there's a great start, and it's lulled you into a false sense of metalness. It just doesn't go anywhere. Um, now, tracks don't have to go anywhere. I know that. And um, and we've listened to some very good ones that don't. Probably because of what they can do, I just find this quite unsatisfactory. It's all a bit sort of mid-tempo to slow tempo. And, yeah, there's a nice solo or two in there. But even though it comes out of that, it kind of deflates into the finish. And um, it's just not for me. This is fucking hilarious, right? Because I've written down here, it's a bit like cashmere. It doesn't go anywhere. And, and to boot, it reminds me of cashmere. <laughs> Sounds a bit like cashmere. Um, I love this song, right? I can sort the chorus. The chorus drives me mad. It's just relentlessly irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I were a teacher... On their school report for this album, I would be, I'd just be writing could do better. I just think it's just lazy. For, for Queen's right, if this was another band, you go, oh, it's great. You know, it's really clever, ambitious, technologically, you know, musically advanced. For, I just think it's lazy for them. I really do. Luckily, the last two tracks redeem the whole thing. Yeah, well, let's get on to track 10, shall we? Screaming in Digital. A song that I've... I forever got confused because I thought it was on Mindcrime. <laughs> hmm. And it could have been, should have been. And, well, again, I think we're back to classic Queensrock, aren't we? Massive back line, layered keyboards, chopping riffs, so much going on, stuff's, stuff's flying in and out all over the place. But right in the middle is this absolutely colossal, thundering, charging riff. This is, this is brilliant. I, you know... I kind of breathed a sigh of relief at this point because I really felt as though we got sort of through this, what I considered to be a saggy first side of, uh, sorry, a saggy first half of the second side. But this is them. This is, this is absolutely definitive Queens, right? And really good, completely relentless in a good way and an absolute return to form. So yeah, couldn't come soon enough for me, I have to say. 
I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. I honestly don't get it. I said it's a jigsaw, and I can't put the pieces together on this song. I genuinely cannot. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Maybe mind crime is not for me, eh? <laughs> mm, well, yeah, we'll we'll see. Oh, well, let's see if uh, we might all agree on the last uh, track of the album, which uh, is track eleven, and uh, I will remember uh, another slow song to finish. I I, I find it. I find it pleasant. It's not outstanding for me. Um, again, you can kind of feel the, the bits and pieces that could become things like silent lucidity, some nice acoustic guitars, nice acoustic solos. Um, yeah, it's a pleasant end to the album for me, but nothing more than that. No, it's not. It's not in silent lucidity's league, is it? It's just. It's yeah. Starts off awfully. I think it does improve. Um, it's not the big finish I was expecting from a, from a, such a big band, but um, hey ho, it's yeah, it's it's perfectly pleasant. Um, well, not for the first time tonight. You're both wrong. <laughs> um, this is the outstanding moment on the album, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this this for me. Uh, once you get past the the winds of change whistling. Um, which came before Winds of Change, obviously. I just think that th- this is an album that narratively talks about oppression, technological oppression, oppression and control, government control. And all of the songs are in in very kind of, in, in Queen's right fashion. Actually, they're, they're they're quite a gloomy band in terms of their subject matter, and and there's, they paint a very bleak picture through this album. But I think what they end with is. Um, is is a kind of a moment of kind of hope and positivity, and mm. that's where I get this. This for me is Blade Runner, and it's Roy Batty, his his little kind of monologue. I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Attack ships off the, on fire off the shoulder of Orion. That's that's where I am with this track. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's a perfect way to end the, end the album, and it is my track of the album. Wow! Mm. I'll get me coat. <laughs> well, you know, I've been wrong tonight as well, so it's okay. Just join the club. Yeah. So let's see how different our highs and lows are then. Mark, do you want to go first? Well, I, I don't think there's any doubts. Is there? I've, I've kind of been over this, but yeah, Noia Regal um, or New Rain, New Rule, as it translates, would be my, my low. And I will remember is my... Uh, hi, just nudging it from um, going to get close to you. Steve. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give Screaming in Digital a, a chance again, but right now, I just, <laughs> no, it's, it's not on my radar at all. Um, and I'm torn between Neuer Regal and uh, going to get close to you. Going to get close to you, I think. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I, I still just can't get connected to going to get close to you. Um, I've not got a low score, but um, and uh, Noi Regal is my high of this album. Well, good, good. I'm uh, I'm glad we all enjoyed that. Um, I think it is. I think it's an undiscovered gem. If you haven't uh, really listened to it properly, then please, please do. So that's two out of our 1986 albums out of the way, and we need to move to our third 
which is out, I think, just about a month or so after Rage for Order. And we're now cropping to Japan and that wonderful band that is Loudness, Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so this was uh, July 86 was the US version, which is what we've been listening to, uh, the Japanese version, which was not called Lightning Strike, so it was called Shadows of War, was released in March 1986. As I say, we're looking at the US version um, of Lightning Strikes, off to the land of the rising sun, the land of the bandana and the Nikki Six lookalikes. And Japan's answer to KISS in terms of um, productivity, at least, because... They're still going, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, last time I looked on Wikipedia, I think they're on album number 27. It's a hell of a workload for a band who um, weren't actually formed until 1980. And they have split up a couple of times, as all good bands do. Um, but anyway, they, and they've reinvented themselves an awful lot of times as well over the decades. Blimey, I mean, you know, they, they kicked off as a kind of off the bat as a sort of jap rock band, then went to the States, had their heads turned and became this this loudness, kind of a three or four album period where they produced their best stuff. I, uh, no two ways about it. But beyond that, they kept going. They, they, they <clears throat> tried several different other means of, of, of rock. Um, they got heavier. They've been the lead singer, um, Minoru Nihara, which is a crime because he's just a brilliant singer. They went grungy for a bit. They went groovy for a bit. They went speed metal for a bit. They got the double bass drummer for a bit. Went back to their 80s roots in the early noughties um and what's great about that is they've gone through all these different kind of you know reincarnations and their fan base has just never ever wavered they are just massive massive in japan and they're so loyal to them you know these guys could you know go on stage and sing petula clark numbers and their fan base would be with them every step of the way and i think that's brilliant i love that i know there's a bit of a cliche with jack metal but they love their rock and um Let's face it, any nation that loves its rock. Now, listen, I've only got three loudness albums in my collection, so I can't sit here and pretend I think I know where it ranks in their, well, enormous back catalogue. But I do know that I prefer the two, the other two I've got, which are the two that came out immediately before it, um, Disillusion and Thunder in the, Thunder in the East. Um, Disillusion, incidentally, seriously underrated. Everyone should listen to Disillusion. It's a brilliant album. Thunder in the, uh, Thunder in the East was the first one that was with Max Norman, this, and this was the second one with Max Norman as producer. And the interesting thing about Lightning Strikes is that the impression I got from Nihara when I listened to an interview with him, he gave the impression that Norman wanted them after Thunder in the East, which was massive and brilliant, and just a fantastic, fantastic album, just awesome, so, so good. He said he wanted them to go back to their more kind of Japanese roots on Lightning Strikes. I mean, I'm not sure I'm getting any sense of that whatsoever. Um, Anyway, I love it. Undoubted star of the show is Akira Takasaki, songwriter, lead guitarist, and a man you will never, ever see feature on any lazy-ass top 50 rock guitarist of all time. And that's a criminal, criminal omission because the bloke is, he's not American and he's not English and he's not German and therefore he ain't going to be there and he should be because he's, he's a show guitarist, but he's more than that. He's no Ingwe. I mean, he is an Ingwe in terms of he can play a bloody guitar, but he's better than that, because he, I think, because he's, he's he drives the band along, and he's part of the band, and Ingwe, you always kind of feel, is he actually part of the band? 
Takasaki is just genius. I love it. So I love this album anyway. It's brilliant. I've had so much fun revisiting it, and I'm sure you two have as well. Yes, I have. It, it's really good fun, isn't it? It, it? It's upbeat. It's yeah, interesting to talk about those two months. I would say, whilst, yeah, it's a fairly straight-ahead rock album, there are some... They've certainly had to think about some styles of different tracks. I mean, technically, uh, they are really, really good. Um, so, I mean, they, they, they are, they're, they're all pretty blooming good musicians. Hell knows what they took two, two months doing. Maybe they're just enjoying themselves. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's loudness. It's great fun. Always is. Mark? I'd say two things. The first thing is this is definitely Akira Takasaki's band because he is all over it. His fingerprints are everywhere. <laughs> um, so you're never in any doubt about who the main man in this band is. And that's all to the good, frankly, because uh, he makes everything sound uh, much better than it probably would in the hands of another guitarist. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is, and I think you've already alluded to this, Steve, coming off the back of Thunder in the East was never going to be easy because it is such a monster album. I kind of feel fun, as much fun as this album is, and it absolutely is. If the, if, if, if the end game was to try to come up with something that would move them on commercially from Thunder in the East, they haven't achieved it. And they've shot themselves in the foot a bit by, you know, by some of the choices they've made in terms of, I think we're back to being experts in album order, everybody. Um, but the ordering of the tracks on this album are a bit odd. I haven't had the time, and I will do, to go and listen to the album front to back, the Japanese version, because I think that might be quite interesting to see, A, to see, does it does it flow better? Because I haven't, you know, there is a bit of an issue with, with the flow between the tracks on, on the international release. But also... Do they sound better for coming off the back of different songs? So, I don't know. I'll go away and listen to it. I can't answer my own question. Um, but, no, it's been great fun listening to it this week. But it's been a week of listening where you're thinking, God, I really wish we were listening to Thunder in the East <laughs> rather than Lightning Strikes. But, yeah. yeah, that's always going to be the case, unfortunately. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I'd say the same about Disillusion as well. But, you know. So, yeah, as I say, it was released July 25, done in Take One Studios in Tokyo on Atlantic, Max Norman at the, at the desk, and the personnel was Minoru Nihara on vocals, Akira Takasaki was held on guitars, Masayoshi Yamashita on bass, and Munataka Higuchi um, on drums, and also the, the keyboard player deserves a mention as well. He's not in the band, but Masanori Sasaji. It reached number 64 um, in the US, which kind of indicated that they were yeah, they were doing well out there. You know, they were they were a big big noise um, stateside. Um, don't know how many it sold, but I'm sure it sold well. Uh, and yeah, ten tracks, five on each side. Let it go, dark desire, thousand eyes, face to face, and who knows. And then on side two, it opens with sorry, five and four, four on side two. Opens with ashes in the sky, which is as I say, is the opener on the um, on the Japanese version. Um, and it's not called that; it's called Shadows of War. Um, and also Black Star Oblivion, Streetlight Dream, and Complication. Um, and yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a fantastic album. It's very well produced. It's got Max Norman's fingerprints all over it. Um, and it starts, as I say, with the track "Let It Go." 
I've not listened. I have to say, I've not listened to loudness for donkey's years. Um, no reason. I just hadn't. So when I stuck on the album this week and after started listening to Let It Go and it's got that nice kind of pop rock intro and then Nihara starts singing and oh, it's that voice. It's that voice. It just transports. I just, I've just, I'm, I'm at it again. I'm just breaking into a big vacant grin. It's almost like it's, it's like a homecoming and it's not. I mean, it just shouldn't be. It just does. There's something about this guy that's so reassuring. It's just such a brilliantly unique voice. Had a real warm glow to it. Love Let It Go and love the album. I think it's a great start. Really good start. Even if it does sound like a cover of Kids in America at some point. But anyway. Have you been reading my notes? <laughs> I've literally got Kids in America written down here. <laughs> um, which, which kind of reinforces my opening gambit, which is that it lacks the attack of... Thunder in the East. Yes. And, I, and I wonder about the decisions that they've made because, you know, what you're really looking for coming off the back of an album like that is to really kind of come out swinging. And they, this doesn't. It's it's a great little pop rock, pop metal song. Yeah, well, Let It Go was the single, wasn't it, in the US? Yeah. So it, it, it's clear why they chose this. It's poppy radio play, I, th- I think. So that it was, yeah, the first single starts the album, and because the, they were obviously targeting the American market um, as a song. Look, you've you said it all. It's, it's just classic, happy, upbeat, positive, full of energy, good little riffs. I think it's a good stuff. Yeah, I think we'll all agree on that. And well, I think it actually gets better because um, track two is a track called "Dark Desire." which is not that dark at all, in all honesty. Um, and it has kind of a slightly confused opening, but not on a Queensryche level. Um, and then it steps into a really nice groove, and Nihara, you know, while he was just doing his, you know, his MTV stuff on track one, here you, see, here you hear a far more emotive side to him, and there's an almost, there's a kind of, because he's quite high-pitched, but there's a, still a kind of mournfulness to the way he sings. It's a really, really distinctive tool. And also you get the first whiff of, I mean, he, he solos, trust me, he solos in every song, more than once in, in several of them. But you get the first real whiff of, um, of Takasaki, um, Osaka's George Lynch. That's not, his, that's not his name. I've just called him that. This is a faster, better Let It Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love the riff and the lead. Um, I think so. Yeah, it's a definite step up from the first track. Yeah, yeah, love this. Um, and they, you saying calling Takasaki the kind of Osaka's George Lynch. I hadn't really thought about it, but they are. They they do sound like Japan's Dokken, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's yeah. a real Dokken sound that they very got, much. So. But I'm I'm also getting a big dose of the Scorpions in this, as well as yeah. Dokken. So I th- anyway, I think the, the the first two songs are fantastic. Uh, it just kind of we drop off a notch with track three. I think uh, Thousand Eyes, which is just a piece of kind of gosh, more straight ahead. I think um, catchy chorus, if a little daft, and a good solo. Um, yeah, no, it's okay. It's fine. We 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 saw them supporting Saxon, didn't we? Was it Saxon? Yeah, 
when the drummer had his flaming drumsticks. That was one. Never seen him since. I'd see him again. Yes, so would I. But but even Nihal, with his um, decent English, said very little of that gig, didn't he? <laughs> yes. it, was, it was all about the music that night. It was. Um, it was. Yeah, it's a thousand eyes. Yeah, it, it's solid, but not as good as the uh, the two tracks that went before it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. Um, and then Face to Face doesn't really improve it that much. This is the only song on the album that's not written by Takasaki, actually. It's written by the bass player, Masayoshi Yamashita. It's the heaviest song on side one. I actually think it's probably one of the weaker songs on the album. It's a bit too straight ahead, even for me. It's okay. Nothing more than that, really. Well, it's nothing you haven't heard. If you were around in 1986, you heard this song in various versions an awful lot. Yeah. There's nothing at all surprising about this, is there? It's, no. um, it's standard 1986 fodder. So lots of energy in it, isn't there? This immediately reminded me of uh, Dynamite by the Scorpions. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking any track by Accept. But the end side one, it's a cracker. Who knows? Parentheses, time to take a stand, close parentheses. I still don't actually quite know what to make of this. There's an awful lot of confusion in it, but um, and the verse structure is kind of all over the place. It's all quite odd, but the chorus is great. Because again, it's, it's Nihara, stra- when he strains, all that, I get that emotion, you know, I start welling up. I find this and Complication, which is the closer of side two and the closer of the album, I find these two tracks the most interesting on the album. A minor minority of one. No. I think you've got a really catchy riff. Really, really catchy riff. This this has grown on me the most through the week. And this has got a bit more complexity to it. Maybe this is the one that took them, uh, sort of, whatever, seven weeks of the two months to actually... Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's sort of got Iron Maiden kind of fills to it. I, I like the tempo changes uh, through it. And it's got a really nice groove. So, yeah, this is one of my favourites. Yeah. I don't have a lot to add, really. It's, um, I, I, I find, I don't know, there, there are some of the changes just jar a little bit for me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the riff's great. And I think his vocal performance in this is is. Is excellent actually, yeah. and it's it, again, it's it's one of these songs that is very much of its time, but in a good way. Unlike the one before, which was yeah. of its time in a bad way, this is of its time in it, yeah, in a way that makes you feel warm and comfortable and gooey about it. While side one contains a couple of crackers, side two contains a couple of behemoths, um, just gigantic tracks that will figure on any number of my playlists um and it kicks off with ashes in the sky which is one of them which is just genius takasaki come on down eddie van halen at the outset quickly morphs back into um george lynch and the track just takes off into the meanest of riffs comes back to something slightly more mellow goes off again comes back you get the drift I love the guitar run into the chorus, which is just kind of the whole thing just oozes 86 Americana metal. I just source and it's also clean. The, the Norman production is clean, it's poised, it's accurate, um, it's mature. 
and I listen to this, and whatever I do, it's not even my favourite track off the album. And I listen to this, and it just makes me want to go and see them. Just makes me want to go and see them, just to, just to see them do this again. You know, it's it's a it's a monster. I think it's really interesting you mentioned uh, Max Norman's production because I was going to say th- the production on this particular track lifts it, you know, at several notches. I think, but. I found the, his production, and I know absolutely jack all about production, so I'll defer to Richard's opinion here. But I, I think the, the production on this album generally is quite patchy. Some of it's quite thin, and then you get something really rich like this. And you go, you just, I sit there thinking, well, how has this been produced by the same person? And actually, Max Norman is probably one of the most consistent producers that there was so i don't get it but it's, it's a monumental track this and i and again we're back to classic you know traditional loudness um the, the kind of the loudness that we last heard on thunder in the east so yeah it ticks all the boxes for me yeah i, I like the lifts and drops in it reminded me a bit of don't talk to strangers by dio <laughs> but in a good way yeah of course um, and it wanders into, well, it doesn't wander, it crashes into uh, Black Star Oblivion, which is um, good and heavy, thunders along. Uh, I never tire of Nihara as a singer, even when he goes a bit Klaus Minor, which he certainly does in this song. But, yeah, no, I, I like this. This is this is, this is is the big, heaviest beast on, on side two. And it's okay. It's fine. Yeah, th- th- there's no doubt in they're a heavy metal band now, is there? Because they are tearing it up here mm. um with a you know breakneck riff the vocal is is actually it's not it's sitting over the top it's kind of floating over the top of it so they've been quite the production's quite clever on this track and and the delivery is quite clever so yeah it all works it all works but it's, it's big and brutal and it, it just it's just gonna kind of knock you down if you get in its way Black Star Oblivion goes into, well, my favourite track off the album, which is Street Life Dream, which is titanic. An opportunity, if we needed it, to revel in the shredding skills of uh, Mr. Akira Takasaki. So you've got this great understated loudness backbeat, which is the, the, the rhythm section in this band just does what it does, and it does it so well. And as for Takasaki, on this is just showing off. This track, this is just pure showing off. So we get it only lasts about four and a half minutes, and it's just interlaced with heaven knows what, how many little guitar runs, a couple of absolutely blinding solos. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, um, th- this is my track of the album as well, and it is. It's got that. It, is it? I wonder, Steve, because it's the closest thing to Crazy Nights. Yeah. On this um, but it, it again, it's just it's got that really chuggy riff, hasn't it? Um, and a, and a really nice kind of melodic, kind of um, soaring chorus. Which um, I mean, interestingly, there's there, there are no tracks on this album that I feel compelled to sing along with, which is probably a blessing for anybody who's in the vicinity. Um, in the way that I do on three or four off Thunder in the East. But this is a really, really good showcase for Takasaki. And you're absolutely right. He is criminally underrated, I think. Well, I'm not sure he's rated at all by anybody who's not familiar with loudness. And, and that's a tragedy, really, because 
his his playing elevates everything that he does yeah. or everything the band does. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. But the, I mean, the great thing about the silos is they just they just don't seem they don't seem random. They do fit in, but it is it's just an exhibition, absolute exhibition. Um, and then he, you know, we get the same again in in complication, which is the closer, which again is really interesting. As I say, like who knows on on side one, it's a, it's complicated, you know, the the, the clues in the name. Um, and I love the guitar solos. I love the backing vocals. We haven't heard much backing vocals, and, we, and they give it a go. Bless them, they give it a go in complication. They don't have many words to do, and you can't understand any of them. But that's fine. My Japanese is shite. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, this actually reminds me a little bit more of the kind of stuff they were doing on Disillusion than Thunder in the East. Slightly more sort of Japanese feel to it a little bit. Maybe that's just Nihara's voice. Anyway, nice song. I've written down Dream Theater. Loudness do dream theatre. What are we going? What are we going to do with a song called Complication? Well, let's let's put it in weird time signatures. Yeah. You know, so this is all mainly three, four, three beats to the bar, with bits of two beats to the bar and bits of four beats to the bar, which is why it jumps around all the time. Very, very complicated song, but good, but good. Yeah, it works. Intriguing finish to the album, I would say. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't do complex particularly well. It's it's all right, but it doesn't. Ex- I don't get excited about this. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right, let's have some highs and lows for lightning strikes. Richard, my low is face to face. I think in terms of the ones at the top, I'm between Dark Desire, Who Knows, and Street Life Dream. I'll give it to Street Life Dream. Okay, Mark. So my low is also face to face, and my high is street life dream. Well, well, well. Let's. I'll just. I'll tell you what. Let's just do the hat trick. It's face to face and street life dream, and that was lightning strikes. There aren't many Japanese bands that come across our radar an awful lot, and you know they're off the scale compared to the rest. Brilliant stuff. So, right, we're going to go and score these things. And when we come back to the other side, we'll see where they're all going to wind up in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so you've heard our views on the three albums from 1986. Now let's hear our scores. And, Mark, we started with Baby Taku and Force Majeure. How did that go down? Uh, better than I expected, I have to say. I'm very pleased to see that... We broadly liked it. Well, more than broadly liked it. Scored in the uh, low sevens overall. Stevie gave it a 7.3 dead. Uh, Richie gave it 7.1 dead. Uh, not surprisingly, I scored it the highest, 7.58, if we're going to round it up. Uh, sorry, 7.6, if we're going to round it up to give it an average score of 7.32333. So, yeah, uh, Baby Tuckadoo did all right. Um, Richard, how did uh, Queensryche get on Rage for Order? Yeah, again, we were all above sevens on that. Uh, Steve gave it a 7.05. Mark, you gave it a 7.82. I gave it a 7.64. And that meant that Rage for Order got an overall of a 7.5 dead. What about loudness and lightning strikes, Steve? Mm, well, the, the pick of the three, just um, I gave it 7.61, Mark gave it 7.62, Richard gave it 7.3 and a bit, 
um, for a final score of 7.5222. Three good scores there. Tend to suggest that we're happy. We're happy bunnies in 1986, aren't we? So listen, let's pop over to, uh, let's wander into the Hall of Fame and see where these three albums find themselves. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so here we are in a Hall of Fame that is now 123 albums uh, strong. The first thing to say is that all three of uh, the albums that we've reviewed on this edition of the podcast have all made it comfortably into the top 100, which means that the top 100 waves goodbye to Contagious from Y&T, Long Cold Winter from Cinderella and Fashion by Passion from White Sister. So where did these three albums get in? Well, um, as we just discussed, uh, Baby Taku scored the lowest on the evening, although they're not in competition with each other, of course. Um, But it drops into the 100 at number 76 between Crazy Nights from Kiss and Demolition from Girls School. Next up, well, Rage for Order, um, which comes in at 59 between Physical Graffiti and Doomsday for the Deceiver. And I'm just wondering, Steve, um, Akira Takasaki, if somebody turned around to him and said, listen, mate, one day, one of your albums, which is ultimately going to be two of your albums, given that we've already said this is not the best album that they've done, but one of your albums will be above Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti in an all-time top 250, 300, 7,000, whatever it turns out to be, he'd have been pretty happy, wouldn't he? He absolutely would have done, yeah. He probably wouldn't have understood the question and we wouldn't have understood the answer. But, yeah, he would have been very, very happy at that thought, yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm I'm just quite surprised. I'm not not unpleasantly surprised, but surprised that um, Lightning Strikes got in above Rage for Order. Kind of, yes. No, no, I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure. So uh, that's that answer. <laughs> I don't quite know. Yeah. Well, as long as you're definitive about it. <laughs> yeah. The one surprise I have, the one surprise I will have, actually, funnily enough, is Force Majeure at seventy six. I know it's a, you know, it's an unheralded album, but I thought it would fare better than that. That said, yes. it still wound up. It still wound up with a, call, a score of seven point three. That's where seven point yeah. three gets you these days. But. I, I think based on the conversation we had, I was expecting to do a little better than that as well. But but then again, when I chose it, I wondered if it would get into the top 100 at all. So, you know, it's not a bad night's work for them. Richard, what your thoughts on, on where we've landed here? I suppose I, I hope Rage Fraud might do a little better than, than that, but uh, it's a pretty solid start for Queensryche, isn't it, in our Hall of Fame? Um, and yeah, the the scores represent the fact that we've just had a really good fun week listening to these three albums. Yeah. It felt like we were back in a comfort zone. 1986 was a comfort zone, wasn't it? And um, I've always, any, yeah, any of those, any of those mid eighties years, we'll, we'll, we'll find, we'll find umpteen albums that are going to be an, an absolute delight to, uh, to review. Um, And I hope you've shared the same amount of fun that we've had uh, going through these. Um, and that you will be back with us. Until next time, all the best. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. 
To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 